Do not tell me that the world is not wonderful. Have I not just watched a solitary bird cross a white winter's sky above red gold burnished leaves, aflame amidst the richer greens of our more permanent trees, and all a little opaque as clenched by soft rain? Do not tell me that the world is not wonderful. Nikki Florence Thompson. I've known her for a while now, but I've never had the opportunity to delve into her story. She's a writer, academic in literature, sister, wife, mother of three beautiful children, and she's the author of a recently published book, Fight, Flight and Faith, a memoir exploring a life with anxiety and Jesus. Recently, I had the opportunity to reconnect with her over a cup of tea and chat about the journey leading to this book, her experience with mental health and her relationship with her late brother, Greg. The poems interspliced within this podcast is Nikki reading unpublished poems that Greg penned. So grab yourself a cup of tea as we spend our time now in Conversations with Earl Grey. Hey friends, welcome back from our break. Uh, Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Earl Grey. I am in a currently new location in my garage. And instead of a cup of tea, I've got a glass of water. And with me uh, is my friend, Nikki Florence Thompson. Uh, all the way from Brisbane. How are you going, Nikki? I'm going well, Sam. It's not that far away in Brisbane. It feels not far, that away. far away. Far away with the lockdowns, but yeah. Uh, far away, exactly. <laughs> um, up in sunny Brisbane, and um, we've we've known each other for maybe six years, something like. We yeah, about that. Tell me, tell me about your family. You've got, I think, three wonderful children. Three wonderful children. Yep. We have Evie, who's 10, uh, Willem, who's eight, and Joey, who's six. And he was born at college, so it is six years. Yep. Yeah, I remember um, Evie and Willem having wonderful dress-ups going to lunch together. <laughs> yes, um, yes, there were some quite quite unusual dress-ups. Yeah, our family yeah. is a bit theatrical, so... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Mike and I used to um, read tillage together or bart together that so Mike's about right. your husband um and you have a doctorate in literature I do yes yes what was your what was your area oh so I think of myself as I still teach at uni I teach creative writing but I always I have a bit of that imposter syndrome with um with my PhD but I do have one uh it was a cross between creative writing and literature and uh, I like I wrote a, a novel and then I also uh, researched the way we present uh, war to children and traumatic topics to children through story and how we can use story as a way to introduce things in the world that might be too much in a sort of fact-based area using fiction as kind of a way in so but that was another life. <laughs> wow. Have you heard of um, 
John Marsden's picture book. Uh... I actually don't know if I have. So the guy I looked at was Michael Morpurgo. He's a British, he was the children's laureate. And he has virtually like a whole business just writing about war for children. Wow. And intergenerational transference of knowledge and all this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, The other one I I just got as well is um, called This is a Suitcase. I don't Mm. know if you've read this one. And I don't know where it is now. I, I buy, I, there's... As you can see behind me, I have a lot of bookshelves and the curse of my, I found the curse of my life is that every time I categorize my books, it means that I will move house. Right. It's always happened. Yeah. So now I'm not categorizing my books, but I can't find this book. There it is. (laughs) Um, What is this that we're going to see? How to put a whale in a suitcase. No, I haven't seen... I love that yeah, this, visual, this, this though. This one just came out, um, and oh. it's it's about um, refugees. I love it that you... They... I love it that you buy picture books. Oh, I, yes, I also... Picture books, them. you probably think this as well, is like... It's, it's a form of poetry, I think. Image yeah. and words. And some of the most beautiful, I think, lyrical writing can be found in picture books. Yeah, not that's not right. the sing songy rhymey silly stuff. I no, mean, no. the you know, yeah, it's the there's some beauty there. Anyway, so this is about how to how to put a whale in a suitcase, is about refugees and what they leave behind and how much oh. they can carry and that looks how beautiful. Does, how does this little boy Ooh. take okay. a whale across the ocean? I want to come and have a look at that now. Anyway, that's a great book. <laughs> Drop and, into your garage. Um, and you've uh, you've written a novel. You wrote a novel for your PhD, but you've also just written a book called F- Fight, Flight. <laughs> it's hard to say. Fight, flight, or crossed out, or and faith. Mm-hmm. Um, a life with anxiety and Jesus. We're going to come back to this a little bit later. If you were a Here's, here's a question I ask everyone. If you were a cup of beverage, what would you be? Oh, if I was a cup of beverage, what would I be? Well, I love tea as well, and I love chai tea. So I think I would be a milky tea. <laughs> I'm not too strong. I'm quite, um, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a pushover, really. My, my kids call me a marshmallow. <laughs> their, their nickname for me is Marshy. This is a long story. But, um, yes, uh, oh, gosh, describing yourself as a beverage. Um, it's I mean, a tricky one. Yeah. Uh, I think with I'm all feeling and that sort of thing. So maybe, you know. A milky chai with, yeah, with a bit yeah. of cinnamon in it. Yeah. I mean, I would like yeah. to drink that. So yeah. <laughs> if that is the, the way we categorise me, I'll go with that. Yep. Were you originally from Brisbane? No, not at all. So we grew up in Sydney. Well, I grew up in Sydney. We only moved here, what is it, five, four years ago? After college, probably four years ago. Um, we've lived in Melbourne as well, only briefly when Mike was teaching there and I was doing my PhD. But no, we moved to Brisbane for a job and then we've ended up staying here um, which was very serendipitous with lockdowns and everything because we actually landed in a pretty good place at that time. 
Yeah. And how has lockdown been for you? At yeah. Parenting I'm... three, three kids. Well, at we've, home? Yeah, yeah, we've been pretty lucky actually. Um, I mean, we have had school did stop, you know, in twenty twenty. Well, not stop. It went into um, distance learning in twenty twenty, and then briefly this year. But we didn't have the same intense long periods as Sydney or Melbourne had. So we've been really lucky um, in that way. Uh, I think overall it's it's a nice place to be here um, because of the weather and because of, you know, the style of life. Where we live is actually outside of Brisbane, so it's not it's, – it's very nice and quiet and laid back here. So I think in terms of that I almost not feel guilty but um, feel – you know, aware of how thankful I am that we've been able to come through this a lot easier than other people. Who knows what's in the future, though, as everything opens up. So, yeah. You mentioned in your book that you you have a generalised anxiety disorder, um, which, um, how, how would you describe that? What's, what's generalised anxiety disorder for those of us who don't know? Yes. So it's called generalized anxiety disorder. There's a whole group of anxiety disorders. Um, I also have panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. Then there's some social anxiety, all those sorts of things. I sort of categorize mine. I mean, I've I've got that and panic disorder. It's just, um, I guess it's just ongoing anxiety. It's quite amorphous. It's not just triggered by one thing. It's something that I live with daily um, in my nervous system and in... um, the way I perceive the world, all those sorts of things. How did that, how did COVID and lockdown impact that? Because mm. for myself, I'm, I'm not, I, I am an anxious person, but I'm not, I, I don't have generalised anxiety disorder, but I could feel mm. a month into the first lockdown, I could feel my stress levels going higher and I could feel that my resilience to just small everyday changes. Yeah. I I began, I could see the edges of my, my resilience fray a bit. Yeah. I can imagine it could be a, it could be much more. Yeah. Well, and from what, um, from what I've read, you know, mental health and, and all these sorts of things have just skyrocketed problems with um, with COVID because there's an atmosphere of um, anxiety makes you very vigilant and worried about threat and uncertainty is the thing that is the worst for that. If you're not certain of an outcome, then you're going to feel more anxiety and then COVID brings anxiety, uh, sorry, uncertainty and it brings vigilance, like everybody's cleaning their hands all the time or, you know, have I been in this place or that place? For me, um, being here has made it easier because I'm in kind of a low-risk place, although I must admit with borders opening up in Queensland, which is a great thing and everybody's, you know, in Sydney and everything's really excited about it, but I I guess that probably will raise my anxiety levels somewhat. Um, I do remember in 2020 when we had the kids at home and when everything was more, um, you know, right at the beginning when we didn't know what was going to happen and it was all so unknown, um, I took up... I'm not a person who exercises much at all. Like I am not a sporty person. <laughs> um, but we'd just bought this cross trainer thing. Just We'd just bought this um, before COVID, not knowing. And so the way I coped 
when I was doing the distance learning and when everything was more uncertain is I'd go down into our spare room and every night or every second night I'd, um, you know, put on some music or watch a show or something and, and work out on this cross trainer and that helped a lot. I was aware that I needed to do things to take care of myself that I wouldn't probably be so aware of in normal times. So, yeah, but I think by this stage, thankfully, I was in a pretty good place and having spent years working on my anxiety, I kind of knew. Oh, and I started seeing a counsellor again, actually, in COVID, which I hadn't done for years. Um, and she was great. We just did it over Zoom and lovely woman, um, not a believer, but just a really lovely, um, quite funny, like I think a sense of humour helps with these sorts of things. And we'd talk and um, she'd just reassure me that I think I felt a comfort knowing that I wasn't alone this time in my anxiety. It wasn't just me and everybody else was feeling normal. We were all anxious, which in its in a way could be more scary, but I found a sense of kind of solidarity that, you know, my, my thoughts weren't weird and that we all kind of had to band together in this time in that sense. So. Rain. Rain is your hand in mine when all the world hurts. Rain is your arms of soft sadness around my waist, wrapping me in cardigan sheets of sweet comprehension. And I guess that at 30,000 feet the sun might be raining, but you know how low we are, and soft rain is all I ever hoped that we might be. Now there is rain in the sky over Kalbara, and you are never closer than this wandering, by in Shoalhaven water, 20 grassy steps from this back porch. And if only you could be part of this tiny place, be party to this moment's weathery contentedness, to wring a whine of laughter from all this sleeping soil. But the wind is up, and this breeze is wet, and some bird's call speaks the fall of light. And all I know is that you are gone from here, and that it will rain again sometime tonight. You're listening to Conversations with Earl Grey, and we'll be back shortly. How, as a creative writer, how would you describe your anxiety? You you talked about it being in your nervous system, being your everyday life, But, but, but for someone who's never really experienced that i've got passages on this in the book and i have been told by um many people who've written to me that it's it's helped them those who don't have anxiety they can sort of understand it more well there was just that first scene right of you being in the bath yes and not being able to get out yes yeah not I, at first I thought, oh, are you drowning yourself? But I thought, no, you no, weren't. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I, oh, no. I was, oh, I don't know what was happening here. <laughs> oh, okay. But it was yep. as if your 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 whole body froze and yes. you could not control your body. Yeah, and I do remember that. Yeah, and I've heard that's quite common. So there's fight, there's flight, and there's also freeze. I don't have freeze in my title, which is where you almost sort of totally shut down from fear. Um, and I think that's probably what happened in that. Yeah, that was one of my strongest panic attacks before I really knew what was going on when I was around 20. Um, and I because, still distinctly remember that. Yeah, because in that 
we'd often associate panic with raised heartbeat, mm. hyperventilation. Yep. But how how you experienced there was a frozenness. Mm, yeah, and I was feeling all those things internally, probably not hyperventilating. Thankfully, I don't usually get that, but the raised heartbeat for sure and just mm, that mm. adrenaline surge. I always think of it as like almost like a heat going through your body, like this mm. kind of fiery firebomb going through your body. It's such a weird yeah. thing to explain, but it feels like yeah. you can look totally normal to the outside world, but inside you're on fire. Um, and I think I felt that in the bath, which would, you know, if someone looked at you when you're having a panic attack, unless you're hyperventilating, like with myself, I don't think you can usually tell. I, I just go really still, but almost like, yeah, like I can't move sometimes. What drew you to looking at traumatic children's literature? <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so that... Um, Was it because of your anxiety? Not consciously, but maybe now that you say that. Um, I've always had a more... My husband calls me a little bit Irish. I've always had a bit of a melancholy <laughs> disposition. <laughs> Um, yeah, I feel things very deeply, but, uh, actually in that case, um, and I talk about this in the book, my dad was a child in World War II in Holland. Um, and he would tell us his stories, which were quite full on. And I've always been fascinated with that. Looking at my dad, this person in Australia now, and trying to imagine him back in a time when, you know, all these things were going on and his own father had to hide in the ceiling not because he was Jewish, but because they might remove him, the Germans might remove him to take him to a labour camp um, where then, you know, so many people. And, and horrible things happened, like his, one of his sisters, the baby sister, a big family, but his baby sister died of starvation and all these sort of things. And I would be like, you're only one generation away from me. How is this possible? And I think um, being that sort of child who was quite sensitive and this sort of thing, it always fascinated me that my childhood was so different. So. I think that was something I wanted to explore and did that in the PhD. And so I'd always had this fascination with my dad and um, how his family nearly starved and this sort of thing. And so my own novel was based on, which is still unpublished at all, it was almost taken up but, um, by a fairly big publishing house here, but it's still, you know, maybe I'll come back to it. But what was I saying? Yeah, it, it was dealing with war and so then I... Um, I guess I've always been interested in those children's books that push the boundaries of of story to um, to speak in those sort of ways. I find myself it's the it's the familiarity, isn't it, of mm. going back to something again and again, knowing what's going to happen, yeah, so that you're not surprised. Mm. Um, it's the scripts of life and in a way that's is that how you would describe walking with an anxiety disorder 
the scripts of Grounding, life. ground. Would you find that you need to ground yourself in things that are overly, sorry, continually familiar ah, to be centered? Um, yes, in some ways. Um, I think the, I mean, for me, the grounding, it's very basic. Uh, essence is reminding myself over and over, um, and it, not in a trite way, of God's embrace, of God's, I love that image of God holding us under his wing, like the feathers covering me. These are the sort of things when I'm in the midst of just feeling, um, which thankfully doesn't happen so much these days, but it can, just to ground myself that um no matter what I'm feeling, I am supported and held because when you're in an anxiety attack, you can feel like things are just spiralling and it's almost like you, you're you just going to be whipped off into the atmosphere, like you feel very alone. Um, so probably grounding myself in just those really basic, not theologically concept that, ideas. Why is that embrace so important? Because you could have said love. You could have said forgiveness you could Mm. have said you know the gospel story but you went for the embrace oh yeah I think I mean love by that embrace but I guess I've gone for a physical image there and the psalms have so many physical images don't they of God's wing sheltering us of God's um hand picking up you know the the lambs or the the people who need him I think there's a lot of physical images because I think particularly when we're feeling really, really weak or really, really vulnerable, we need something concrete to um, to counteract that. And God is concrete, even though we can't see him. He's not abstract. His love is concrete. It's real. And so sometimes I think the imagery of his word conveys that. So maybe that's why I go there. I also think in pictures, that's just how I... I just met someone who, um, who, who has a fantasia. They can't see things. They cannot. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. uh, They cannot. And I said, close your eyes. What do I look like? And he said, I have no idea. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually got a colleague who's a English professor. So teaches texts who has that. And I don't know how that, but yeah. The visualizing of the embrace you said. Yeah, I think that's, um, I've never really interrogated it as much as we're saying here, but I guess for me that's huge because, yeah, as I said, anxiety can feel very dislocating. You can almost feel dislocated from yourself. You feel um, disembodied or like you're losing your grip on the earth or your um, grip on anything. And so just picturing God holding you and bringing you back again is really securing for me. Um, And then you're asking what sort of things that I return to. So that's on a a spiritual level. Um, Then there's all sorts of things that I I do to remind myself. Um, You know, I've had this millions of times before. It always passes. It will pass. You've got to sort of almost be the the voice inside your head, kind of like a parent, like reassuring yourself. It's going to be okay. You've done this before. It's okay. You're just feeling like this because you're extra tired. There are reasons for this. So I guess it's a mixture of of seeking God and remembering. As we head further into this podcast, we are going to talk a little bit more about anxiety and 
death. So you need to take a break and do some breathing exercises or just zone out a little bit. Take a time to do that in some of these pauses. We'll be right back. Um, you know, it's usually just those little prayers like help me now. It's nothing profound at that stage. You can't expect people who are in adrenal kind of moments to, um, you know, handle tough theology or something. It comes very back to the, the strong basics and then just reminding myself that this will pass, um, that you're not always going to feel like this. Because when you're stuck in a moment of extreme terror or anxiety or grief or whatever emotion it is, you feel like it's never going to end. But the fact that there is that light outside that you will find again, I think I, I have to remind myself that because I can't always feel that. Yeah. You write in your book that, I'll just read this bit out. Anxiety is a thief. It stole many things from me over the years. It stole my belief in the possibility of good outcomes and any calm or casualness around goodbyes. It stole on many occasions my appetite and even my unconscious trust in my own breath. And in perhaps one of the cruelest acts of all, anxiety stole sunset from me. This, this idea of anxiety as a thief, mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you steal back the moments you've lost? Or do you ever steal back the moments you've lost? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, actually, when I was writing that passage in the book, it's in the context of a wonderful, I had a wonderful couple of counsellors through my sort of 10-year um, intense journey with this. And one of the ways we stole that back or um, I won't say regained because what you get in the end is something different. And I would argue something even better on the other side of pain is that intensity of awareness that you don't take anything for granted. You, um, when you can see sunset again, like I, I started to do, it, it's almost more beautiful because of where you've been. You can appreciate things. You don't take them for granted. So with pain comes also the gift of, I would argue, um, more gratitude and more, um, realization of the good in life when you can see it against the bad but anyway that's another point um so are you what are, what you're saying is when anxiety steals away the beauty it hands you gratitude yes not immediately not immediately. But when you can process things and yeah so i worked with a great christian counselor well she's a psychologist clinical psychologist who was a christian um, and she helped me bit by bit to break down my fears. We'd talk about them, we'd analyze them, we'd use, you know, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, visualization, all sorts of techniques. Also, you know, with prayer and, uh, with awareness that, that God was, was helping me along through this. We wouldn't necessarily pray together, but I'd always pray beforehand and so bit by bit, as I describe in that chapter, as I go on, I started to be able to come out of this intense fear of sunset, which for me was triggered, we think, by my brother's death and that at the time of day that took place. Um, as we unpacked it, as we worked together, 
I started not to have that instinctive fear of that time of day so much anymore. Um, I still have it sometimes and it's quite common for people to, it's like babies can be restless in the witching hour as they call it. It's quite common for anxious people as the sun sets to, um, to feel anxious anyway, apparently. But yeah, as we worked together, I, I became less scared. And then on the other side of that, when you start feeling better, it's not like you forget where you've come from, right? But it's, it's not like a return. It's like a, a I want to say renewal, but it's not entirely renewal, but you might see the world differently and, and you might see things even more beautifully because you're not taking things for granted. You're realizing there's fragility at the edges of everything, but there's also beauty and you want to soak in that beauty when you can. Someone once said, with one hand, the past holds us back and with another, it pushes us forward. Mm. I guess it's not only in panic and trauma that we live in the past. Because uh, <laughs> um, that's what PTSD is, right? It's, it's reliving yes. the past mm. vividly. Yep. Again and again and again and again. But then sometimes we humans choose to live in the past because we believe that the past is better. It's like yep. I was actually in the last couple of days, I've had this same conversation with people that we always say, oh, you know what? Grandma always made it better <laughs> um, to this or that. And yep. then when we, when we actually taste grandma's food, we go, um... Actually, it, it wasn't actually that good. Um, it was because my taste back then right. was not great. Um, and my mm. tastes have refined now. It's like watching yep. sitcoms in the past and <laughs> cacking and then now watching yeah, it again yeah. and going, why is this funny at all? Yeah, that um, nostalgia thing, I think. Yeah, staying in the past is never good. But at the mm. same time, moving forward without processing the past is not good either. Yes, exactly. But yeah. it must be harder to do when the past, like the sunset, is so linked to something as tragic as your brother's passing. Yeah, and I think I didn't realise, I mean, it was only in speaking about these things that we were able to put all that together. At first it was just this existential kind of fear. And there's something nice about being able to name why you're afraid of things and, and giving some clarity to that. Yeah. Tell me about a little bit about your brother, um, Gregory David van der Quark. Yes. So his um, poem is in the front of this book, Atlas. He actually yeah. wrote uh, about 100 poems. Can you read that poem to us? Oh, okay. Sure. So this poem... Or a part of it that you like. Okay. Um, I'm just finding it. So, yeah, he was a bit of a poet. None of these poems were ever published because he died at 22. He wrote his poems between the age of 15 and 22. And some of the stuff I've shown it to fellow um, professor, you know, colleagues at, at uni and things, and they're like, wow, like stunning that he wrote that. Some of the stuff even at age 16 was, um, was really beautiful. And so he influenced this book a lot um, and his words at the end particularly, are, um, are just really, really central to my life. But anyway, he wrote this one, Atlas, uh, for someone else, not someone I actually knew. 
Um, so I can't say this poem's for me, but it was just kind of like my anchor point after he died. So it's called Atlas and he's got Matthew eleven twenty eight at the top, the verse about coming to me to Jesus if you're weary or heavy burdened. Atlas. This map has all the important pieces missing. None of the trails I need to know are marked. I'm looking for a still alpine lake somewhere far off, a lake still enough to sit and stare without fear and deep enough to understand that it's all too much to ever understand. Come peace, come rain, fall in thick misty sheets and pass, leaving me in restful sleep, head laid on friendly pillow to awake tomorrow before my dreamed of lake. It feels as though there's some treasure there, one I'd like to find because my frame can't bear this weight anymore. I just don't want the years to pass, my life a wrecked vessel adrift and afar. It'd just be nice to stand up straight. And though the space between ourselves sometimes is more than the distance between the stars, I think that some friends sitting by my lake in the afternoon breeze might sense something of why this place is an ease for my cares. The water there is of a blue more brilliant than sapphire. And like I said, my lake is deep, for it would take all the aching beauty of a deep blue lake to say it all. Yeah, that's Atlas. And that last line is probably one that has just carried me through the years. It would take all the aching beauty of a deep blue lake to say it all. And um, yes, so I talk about this a little bit in the book that for many years, literally, I would go hunting for lakes. I mean, I knew it was a metaphor in a sense, but I really wanted to find that place. I wanted to find that place of comfort. I felt like there was somewhere in the world where I could just sit and feel safe enough just to let it all out. And so literally, I mean, my husband and I travelled around um, a fair bit in our early years of marriage and I did a fair bit of travelling and I've sat before a lot of lakes. But um, the key is in, in the opening, in the verse at the beginning of the poem, um, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Now I've come to see that Jesus is that deep blue lake. He can understand our pain. He is deep enough to take it all. And there's that aching beauty of Jesus's experience on earth, of Jesus's death. It doesn't come without aching. And so I now feel like the lake is almost in me. It's Jesus. It's God in us. Um, we can come to him and find that restful place to lay our burdens down. But it took me many years to realise that that was the point of the poem. So quite unusual. Most people, I'm terrible with maps, can't read a map, terrible with any spatial things in the real world but metaphors are very strong for me and like this poem I've carried around for years it's like one of the central guiding points of my life I guess it just feels weird to say your brother died at 22 and he was a bit older than you yeah um what how was that as a teenager yeah it was um well, it was profound, uh, profoundly painful. Um, 
So different siblings have different relationships, different families have different relationships. I would say in many ways, my brother was my best friend. Um, we were very close, which is unusual, maybe. Um, we were, were similar, different in many ways, but similar. We both loved reading. Um, I mean, I don't know how many brothers and sisters would sit down in, I used to sit in his room. He was a few years older and he'd already started studying literature and philosophy at uni. And when I was a high school student, he would teach me about poetry. Like it would, if I was doing Seamus Heaney at school and my teachers were, you know, I went to a public school, um, but I was a bit precocious. So I loved to, my brother would, would unpack these poems for me and we'd sit, like who does that? We would sit and he would give me a private tutorial about these poems by Seamus Heaney or by um, whoever it was. And um, I would write things, um, some of it bad, some of it okay, um, my own poems, my own writing, and I would share it with him and he'd give me critique and feedback. Um, but the, the message beneath it all was he had this great faith in me that I was going to um, write something one day, which was a big thing. He used to write me notes and that sort of thing about that, where all along he was like this profound poet, but he was quite humble and quiet. He was more like controlled and quiet and even though I appear shy in real, you know, in public life at home, I'm quite exuberant. And so I was the loud one. <laughs> it was the quiet one. <laughs> and he was working on all these poems all the time um, that we then found after he died. And it seems that death is a thief who has taken away. Yes. Yeah, well, death is. Brother. Death is a thief. Um, more permanent than anxiety, I suppose, in, until until the resurrection. Um, and so that was the thief that I guess that's the one you have to face. Like he's not coming back to this earth. Um, and I had to process that over many years. I think when someone dies, it's hard. It's hard to make that adjustment, even in your language. Like I remember for many years, I'd still use is like Greg is not Greg was or. Um, I know that's a common a common thing for people to suddenly shift your whole way of speaking and thinking about someone um, really baffled me that it could happen so suddenly and I know it happens all the time for so many people, particularly when that person's young, when it doesn't feel like they've had their natural kind of progression through things when it stops abruptly. Mm. A lot of hearers might be, might have, might struggle with anxiety and might be scared about seeing a professional. What would you say to them? Or what would you say to Nikki? Young <laughs> so, Nikki yes. who was scared. So I hate to keep bringing it back to the book, but I do actually talk about this in here. I, I was scared. I actually, I have this scene that I talk about where I, I even try on lots of outfits before I go to see a counsellor because I don't, I want to look like, like there's nothing wrong with me. I don't know why I wanted that. I, I was scared that if they really saw what was inside me, they'd somehow be like astonished and appalled and I'd be unfixable or it would open things too much. I'd have to let go of the tight rein I had on keeping myself in control, holding all these things in and that they'd, once I started talking about them, I wouldn't be able to recover. Um, and I think some people just are, you know, worried they don't want to be a appear as, as broken or as something wrong with them. That's other people. But actually seeing counsellors was for me the most, one of the most liberating and um, amazing experiences of my life, which sounds weird to say, but it's actually, there's something so beautiful about 
being able to talk to someone in such a way that you can realign your thinking and your feeling away from a nexus of fear to a nexus of um, more security, um, not in not in fake platitudes or um, untruths, but in realising that there are some things to fear in life and there are things to be anxious about, but there's also, there is security to be found as well. So I found counselling really helpful. I didn't feel like a weirdo. In fact, in the years since doing it, I've talked to dozens and dozens and dozens of people who've also seen counsellors or psychologists and I think it's more normalised now probably even than it was then so yeah do it find someone that you trust and someone who you can align with I also saw people that I just didn't get on with that didn't kind of get me so you've got to find someone that you can feel comfortable with and that's different for a lot of people different people but um, it can be just a really good and secure experience If your brother appeared in front of you, <laughs> okay, what what would you say to him? You say here, your last meaningful words you spoke to your brother was, "What if there is something wrong with you?" Mm. And you had a conversation with him. Yes. Um, which I won't spoil because it's in your book. <laughs> yeah well I actually asked this question at the end of the book um there's so much I'd want to say to him I, I think I just want to say thank you um you were right about so much <laughs> how how is that possible um I what used was to, he right about just the basics of life somehow he understood it that God's love is more important than all this stuff we worry about like he seemed convicted of it at an early age in his marrow in a way that so many people don't. And I often think is that, you know, did he have something, I don't know, had God given him a special gift or I don't know if I'm romanticising him, but there was a perception there um, for whatever reason he really, he really believed, he really trusted. It wasn't just a front. Um, And so... Yeah, I think I just want to give him a hug and say I loved him and say thank you and, hey, I published a book and your poem's in there. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't and know. And I guess that that him believing that you could do something yeah. was yeah. right. Yeah, he was, I mean, he was a very giving person um, to his weird little sister, so I'd probably just say thank you. Um, yeah. Show him my kids. Anxiety is a thief, death is a thief. But you also write that your brother himself was a gift. Mm. Strangely, well, not strangely enough, perhaps. Um, what do you think, this is the last question. Yeah. What do you think he'll say to you when he, when he sees you? Oh, my gosh. Um... How long ago was this? 20? A long time ago, yeah, 20 plus years. 20 something years ago. If he comes back and if you see him tonight, what what do you think 
after you've told him your life story. After he's read this book. Somehow someone sent this book to... Yeah. He, I think he would say, take a break now. It's all okay. Chill out. Have a cup of tea. You're doing okay. Because <laughs> I'm always... Like, anxiety is perfectionism in some ways. And I'm always, even now, thinking, I haven't done enough. I haven't, you know, I haven't written enough. I haven't done enough. I haven't... Always not wanting to stop. And I think he'd just say, chill out. It's okay. You're okay. God loves you. Just go get a good night's sleep. <laughs> There's so much more we can explore, but perhaps with on that note, it is enough for now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, flight, fight, flight, or and and faith is out now. Um, and it is part memoir, part poetry. And I reckon just reading some of these poems, if you just get it for the poetry, <laughs> <laughs> it is it is worth the buy. <laughs> and on top of that, there is the woven story of how, I guess you could even say that Poetry is prophecy, mm. and how your brother's poems all those years ago came true in yes. your life. Yeah, ooh, I love that. I've never heard anyone say that. Thanks, Sam. That's to beautiful. find the um, the aching beauty of a deep blue lake that mm. says it all. Mm. Well, thank you, Nikki, for your time. Thank you. It's been a wonderful time chatting. And um, I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to chatting with you more. And I'm looking forward to uh, you listeners uh, with another cuppa uh, next time we meet again. Thank you. Friends, it's so good to have you uh, listening again to another conversation with one of my friends. We'll be back maybe next week, maybe the next It's been quite a busy start of the year, but we do have recorded episodes ready to go. So have a great week and we're going to end with a final poem by Greg. John 12, 2-8, a poem. What look in her eyes as she poured pure nard? What faces did watch in dismay over dinner? Then to stoop so very near to the floor and to wipe without cloth, just to dry with her hair. Yet he was in no way dismayed, knowing every moment matters most, and knowing somehow this scented instant was intended to cover the coming three days of silence and horror. Feet were his care, feet to walk with the meek along country roads, feet of friends that divinity might stoop to wash, and feet to break with iron nail that faith might live by sight. But now his feet washed in the wetness of her own lost loving tears, not forgetting how he'd cried when her brother had gone or the myriad ways the love he had shown. And Mary, I wonder if I could only make myself see with that same depth that you saw and stooped anew to give your all I wonder then if I might not begin to love him like you.